0: up your Bibles, Daniel chapter five. Have you ever come toe to toe with a line that if crossed would change everything? When you think about the lines, you know this. You come toe to toe with this line. The moment you walk over that line, you can never go back. Everything changes. There's some good lines. Like, The day you got married, for most of you, hopefully that was a good line. For some of you, not so much. But the day you get married is supposed to be a day where you walk over a line and you never go back, and it's supposed to be, by God's design, a blessing for you. Unfortunately, um, sin has entered into this world and made everything good hard, right? All the things that are supposed to be a great and a blessing, they're not quite as easy as we want them to be, okay? But you cross over these lines and you can never go back. The day you finally broke up with that guy or that girl. Remember all of the heartache, all the anxiety. Oh, should I do it? What will they think? Will there ever be another person who will love me? And finally you break up with that person. You get to the other side of the line. And what do you experience? The peace of God because you knew in the first place you weren't supposed to be on the other side of that line. The day when you finally quit your job. you finally are able to look at this and start over and you leave that oppressive, abusive boss, you leave that oppressive job and you walk into a new future trusting that God has something hopefully a little less oppressive for you. The hardest line to cross, hands down, is the day you cross the line and trust in Jesus Christ. Hands down because that line required a miracle of God granting you faith, awakening your heart, giving you eyes to see, ears to hear. And then that day you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you crossed the line. And what I love about this line is you can't go back because when you trust in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit seals you. It is permanent. It is everlasting. It is official. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit, which means this, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are a child of God and nothing ever can take that away from you. And that God will give. If you faith, and though your faith goes up and down and it struggles, it's permanent, it's forever, and even though your faith doubts at times, there's still, at the end of the day, for every child who is sealed, there's this mustard seed of faith that God will never let you lose. And so these are lines, these are beautiful lines, and then there are tragic lines when Assad used chemical weapons on his own people and children died, gruesome deaths. I mean, you guys saw this, you saw pictures of this. This is a line you cannot cross. This is a line in the sand. If you cross this line, someone is going to have to do something about this. The first time you ever did that drug, I've talked to so many of you in this room and you can pinpoint the downward spiral of your life to a substance, to a moment, to a day. When you ingested this substance, you took it into your body in one form or another and from that day forward, your life went on a downward spiral. It started slow for some, for some it was quick and it just went down and down and you look back to the day that you crossed the line. And what's interesting is that you probably, most people I talked to knew it was a line but your heart was numb to the weight and the consequences of that line. The first time you had sex outside of marriage, before marriage, the first time you encountered someone on that level, you knew it. You crossed the line. You knew it, and you knew that once you crossed this line, there would be a numbness in your body and your heart and your soul, and you couldn't go back. You couldn't change things after you went down this path. There are big lines, there are little lines, and then there's this line, the line of no return. And many people have asked me, have I gone too far? Have I done the thing that God could never forgive, that he could never look past. Like when is the moment when God says, you know what, I've had enough of you. I'm done with you, you're done, no chance for second chances, third chances, fourth chances. I'm drawing a line in the sand. We're done. You're never crossing this line again. Coming to Jesus, off limits. You've totally messed up. Have you ever wondered if you crossed that line? Regularly as a pastor, I get to talk to people who've crossed this line or feels like they've crossed this line. And as a Christian, when people come up to us and they say, have I crossed the line? Do you have a, a helpful, truthful, biblical response to give them? So now turn with me Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 4, if you remember, King Nebuchadnezzar took center stage. He was the king of Babylon, 5th, 6th century. B.C., and King Nebuchadnezzar was a despot, terrible man, full of pride, full of sin, Uh, greatest, most powerful man in the entire world, leader of the Babylonian Empire. And God was resolved, I will have this man's heart. Even though this man has done atrocities beyond anything any of you could ever imagine doing, God was intent, I'm going to save this guy. I am going to make this guy a follower of the one true God. And so in order for God to do that, remember what he had to do? He had to um, take him for seven years, gave him the mind of an animal. He lost his kingdom for seven years, and he lived in the wilderness, eating grass, his hair grew. As long as eagle's feathers, his claws grew out, and he looked like a wild animal naked, running throughout all of the wilderness. And this was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great, majestic King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of seven years, because God told him there was going to be a seven year time, that at the end of these seven years, I'm going to draw a line in the sand. I'm going to give you one last option. You either submit to me or you're done. Now, in the story, good news Nebuchadnezzar trusted in God. Uh, left his pagan polytheistic religion, um, followed the one true, as Daniel calls him, the most high God, which is in the book of Daniel, what the monotheistic followers of God call God the most high God, follows him and rejects his paganism and submits his life to Christ, publicly tells the entire nation, and then he even writes his testimony in Daniel chapter four, which is all Nebuchadnezzar's hand in it. It's a really amazing story. Daniel chapter five answers this question. What if Nebuchadnezzar woke up from his seven-year stupor and said, forget you, God, I'm gonna keep doing what I was doing, I reject you. This is the story of what happens to Nebuchadnezzar had he done that. And so we get to point number one, your notes, the lines you cross, King Belshazzar, he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and they drank wine in front of the thousand. I have three questions, number one, who is Belshazzar? Uh, So there is a king that followed King Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel wrote nothing about that king. Well, there's a king who followed that king, and Daniel wrote nothing about that king. And then there was another king who followed that king. You know what Daniel wrote about him? Nothing. And then finally, there was a king who ultimately had a son, (laughs) and his name is Belshazzar. And finally, Daniel picks up Time has elapsed because Daniel, when we started the story in Daniel chapter 1, was maybe 15 years old. Now he is over 80 years old. Daniel is an old man. The day today of this verse, Daniel uh, chapter 5, verse 1, is October 16th, 539 B.C. We meet Daniel, retired, old. He has personally watched multiple Babylonian kings pass. And King Belshazzar, it's hard name to say, uh, he is about to experience a night unlike any other night. He's going to experience a night where he crosses a line. And as he crosses this line, God has had enough. This is the line he cannot return from. This is the line where God will not, not allow him to go back. So Belshazzar is the son of, have got to get this right, Nabonidus. Hard name to say, okay? Nabonidus. Nabonidus was a, not a great king, but not a bad king as Babylonian pagan polytheistic evil people go. And so what King Nabonidus did, which what good kings should have done, is they went off to war when there was a war. Surrounding Babylon was the Medo-Persian Empire led by, led by King Darius and King Cyrus. And this Medo-Persian Empire was resolved to overtake, conquer Babylon, and be the world empire. They would be the most powerful empire in the entire world, and they would take over by force. They were brutal, and they were after Babylon. So what's going on in Babylon on October 16th, 539 BC, right outside the walls of Babylon, right outside by the way. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire has surrounded this entire city. This is why we know the date. History on multiple levels affirms the date of when this happens. And I want you to just get a picture of what's happening in Babylon. Babylon is considered to be, at the time, the most fortified city in the world, impenetrable. It is thought to be impossible to get in this city. At least three walls. Walls, there's, uh, so historians are confusing because, you know, ancient history, consen- and hyperbolize a little bit, sort of like pastors can. So um, they had three walls. Here's what we know. And so there'd be 50 to 80 feet tall are the conservative estimates of the low end and the high end of the wall. Some historians have said up to 370 feet tall. Uh, we don't know, but we know that these walls were incredibly thick. You're not going like, to just battle-ram them down. Um, there were multiple gates made of bronze. They were beautiful. And the river Euphrates went right through the middle of Babylon. So they had an unending water source. And they diverted the river Euphrates so that there was an enormous moat all around the entire city. So if you were going to even get to the walls, you had to get over the moat. And if you got over one wall, there's a second wall. If you got over the second wall, there'd be a third wall. And even if you got past the two walls, you got these huge bronze gates that are fortified Impossible to get down. And so every army knew this. They knew this. If we're going to get into Babylon, we are not going to do it by going straight through the doors or straight through the walls. This is not going to happen. There had to be another way. Two days prior, the Persians took a major city in Babylon, Sippar, big city, destroyed the people, destroyed the city, took over. Many of Babylon's soldiers fell and died just two days earlier. And so we hear, we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, and Belshazzar thinks to himself, I'm going to throw a huge, great feast. We're going to throw a banquet. We're going to invite thousands of of the lords of these elitist jerks to come in, and we're going to throw just a big party. Why a banquet? Well, there's a few people who few, few surmise some ideas. One is, maybe this is a last hurrah. Maybe they knew, we're gonna die soon, so let's just live it up, eat, drink, and be merry, and then we'll die. Well, likely that's not the case. The context doesn't even give us this idea. It seems that something else is going on. Maybe this was a party to boost morale because cities have been taken, and don't get me wrong, Belshazzar knew, as he sits in this party, that the Medo-Persian Empire has surrounded the entire city. I don't think that's accurate either. I don't think this was a last hurrah. I don't think this was to boost morale because people are discouraged. I I think this was a bunch of snobs, rich, pompous, lazy men and women who thought they were indestructible. They are unstoppable. They are around the borders of Babylon, the great, the indestructible, impenetrable city. And I think they really just believed we will never be defeated. We will never be killed. This banquet tells us the king's son is lazy, entitled, indulgent, elitist, and we're going to see offensive. Now, I want to take a little pause. Did you know? Did you know that for hundreds and hundreds of years, Daniel chapter 5 was used by liberal scholars to make the following point? Um, The Bible is untrustworthy and historically accurate because, liberal scholars would say, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documents from the Babylonian Persian, Medo-Persian, Assyrian Empire, and never, not one of them, never ever, do they tell us or mention the name King Belshazzar. Then, Uh, The list goes on. So what they do know is we have every king from Nebuchadnezzar all the way down to Nabonidus and in 539 BC when Babylon the Great fell, this huge city. We know this, that Nabonidus was the great king of Babylon and he was defeated um, by the Medo-Persian Empire. That's what we know. And so Christians for years would say there's gotta be more information. There's gotta be more information, okay? And so here's what I like to say. When something doesn't make sense, when, when you see a circumstance and you're like, something doesn't feel right about this, There's always a piece of information that if you had it, would make sense of it. Everything in this world, all the time, always makes sense. The only thing we're lacking sometimes is one piece of information. Then, in 1881, uh, at the Temple of the Sun, an archaeologist found this. And you know what this describes? It's King Nabonidus. It's his cylinder. He had this written. And in it, do you know who he talks about? King Belshazzar, (laughs) and he talks about him being his eldest son, and he talks about when he would go off to war and he would go on diplomatic duties, do you know who would be the reigning king of Babylon in his absence? You know what his name was? Belshazzar, his eldest son, and and history tells us most likely that Belshazzar was the grandson-ish of Nebuchadnezzar because likely he married one of Nebuchadnezzar's granddaughters. And so here's what we find. It's interesting. So for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, here's what liberals are saying. The Bible isn't trustworthy. Don't trust the Bible. Don't trust the Bible. The Bible's inaccurate. Supernatural things like this can't happen. The Bible can't be trusted. And you know what we find? Time after time after time, archaeologists are uncovering things regularly like Nabonidus' cylinder. And then multiple excursions after this have revealed multiple times where Belshazzar is mentioned in Babylonian and Persian documentation. And so here's what we find is that the Bible is always verified true by archaeology and history. You give it enough time and it's like the Lord just withholds information so that the wise of this world put all of their stock in one thing and then God crashes that market and they're all like, oh no. We didn't see that coming. How many liberal pastors preached through the book of Daniel in the 1800s and got up in front of the churches and said, now, nowhere in the history books is Belshazzar mentioned, and we know that the Bible has errors in it, and the Bible is a good moral story, blah, 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 puke, 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 right? And so how many people got up? And then in 1881, this cylinder is found, and then they interpret it, and they're like, oh, I was wrong. And over and over again, now it's said, who can actually like know this for sure, but it's said that one to two percent of written history has actually been uncovered, which means 98 to 99 percent of written history is still yet to be uncovered. And we have yet to uncover in archaeology one piece of history that makes the Bible null, void, inaccurate, or anything of the sorts. And so I love this. I love being able to stand on God's word. And there may be a season where Daniel for a season looks foolish because he takes a stand on God's word and God's promises. But who vindicated Daniel at every corner of his life? God did. Let God be found true and every man a liar. That's what Romans says. And so one of the things I love about being a pastor is people may not think our teaching is relevant. They may not believe the Bible's accurate. But over and over again for 2,000 years, the New Testament and the Old Testament through history and archeology span have proven themselves to be accurate, I really like being a Bible teacher for reasons just like that. Now, we'll go to verse two. There is a party. Um, what you may not know, but the t- context will make clear in a moment, is that this is most likely a um, a, a drunken sexual arousal of multiple pe- multiple people. There are kids in the room, so I'm trying to think of how to say this <laughs> nicely. Uh, and anytime you're in a drunken stupor that is hypersexualized like this, um, do you feel like good decisions are going to be made? What's the answer? No, I mean, can any of you go back and be like, I made the best decision when I was drunk. It was like the best thing I ever did. Probably not. Verse two, Belshazzar, the historically now guy that we know is actually the king's son, ruled in his place. When he tasted the wine, meaning he was drinking the wine, he's getting more and more drunk, he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Enough of the red Dixie cups. Give me the good stuff, right? That's basically what's happening. Now, rewind, okay? Rewind here. If this was an audiobook, the moment the author read The Vessels of Gold and of Silver, here's what you would hear in the background. Dun, dun, dun. Okay? Drama. Here's why. Because for us, big deal. They're vessels of gold. Big whoop. They're in the Babylonian chambers. They're sealed and locked, and they're a prize of Nebuchadnezzar. What's the big deal? For God, For the Jewish people, under Old Covenant law, when this was written, this is massive. This is an insult like no other insult you can think of. These vessels were considered to be sacred, holy, and I want you to understand this. This is deeply personal to God. These are sacred objects, and Belshazzar is committing sacrilege, Not on accident, on purpose. So in our culture, we don't have typically sacred, secular distinctions. In our culture, everything is fair game, Nothing is sacred. You go back into the Old Testament, into the Old Covenant. God was very clear to put into the rhythm of Jewish law sacred and secular, clean and unclean. Why? So that they could actually begin to learn morality. Because the Jewish law was the first time where there was this beautiful, crystal clear moral ethic injected and infused into humanity. And by the way, because of that Jewish ethic, you are here today. America and civilizations were built on the backbone of this Judeo-Christian ethic. Without this historically clean, unclean, sacred, secular distinction, morality would not have been infused into our condition and then handed on from one generation to the next. And so this sacred, secular distinction was, at the time, one of the most helpful in creating moral and ethical boundaries and laws. And as kids were raised up in these boundaries and laws, these morals and ethics weren't just something that was taught. They were deep in their soul. And so God was very concerned about these vessels because these vessels were sacred. Now, we're going to uncover this a bit more as we go On here, but the Babylonian king knew this. The Babylonians, unlike Americans, they had sacred secular distinctions. Uh, King Nabonidus and Belshazzar, I want you to catch this. They didn't reject the God of the Hebrews, they believed the God of the Hebrews was real. They believed he was an objective personality who had power. Okay, this is not like him saying, We just disrespect you and we don't believe you're real. This is saying, My God is stronger than your God and now I am going to publicly shame you and commit sacrilege, I'm gonna take objects that I know are reserved for sacred holy use and I'm gonna use them for profane use to shame you. That's what's happening. This isn't just some accident. This is an act of arrogance and pride personally against Yahweh, the king of the Jews. There's some lines you just don't cross and I want to give you an illustration maybe to help you understand how God feels about this. How many of you remember the movie Taken 2008, Liam Neeson, right? He gets his, daughters, his daughter taken, right? And uh, he gets on the phone and he's talking to the captor of his daughters and he says this, I love this. I don't know you. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills. (laughs) Skills I've acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I'll not look for you, I'll not pursue you, but if you don't, I'll look for you, I'll find you, and I will kill you. (laughs) (laughs) remember that? Like this is a great moment. You're like, you mess with my kid. I'm coming after you. And every dad was like, dang straight. Like you do that to me. I will hunt you down. I don't care. You know, like every father in the room was empathizing in that moment. And this is how Yahweh feels about the vessels. These are mine. They are sacred. This is personal. You mess with them. You mess with me. I'm coming after you. Don't do it. And of course, Nabonidus in a drunken stupor, and I'm sorry, Belshazzar, is not thinking accurately. Verse three says, then they brought the golden vessels, dun, 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 that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. Never do that. You have to be ceremonially clean in the Holy of Holies, under the law. Anything outside of that just infuriates God. And And then it says this, and they drank wine and praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Point number two in your notes, the point of no return. Verse five starts off with immediately. (laughs) It is a great word because as soon as they gather for this, we'll say pagan, sexual, drunken worship, God says, enough, I'm done. You've crossed the line. You knew what you were doing. You knew my power. You know who I am. This thing, we're done immediately it says in verse 5 immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand it's not thing from the adams family okay like this is much more glorious this is much more petrifying This is unlike anything you've ever seen. The paintings, you see Rembrandt's Belshazzar, uh, and the paintings do nothing. Do nothing to tell you the weight and the emotions that you would experience if you were in the presence of the hand of God. And what we find here is that there is a particular vessel, the lampstand. It's interesting that the author, Daniel, draws your attention to the lampstand. And the lampstand represented that God's people were the light of the world, and Daniel probably in this moment was going to be a bright shining light to King Belshazzar. Now, why were these vessels so personal to God? What is going on here? I'm going to give you a couple reasons. What you may not know is that um, in originally the tabernacle, which was a tent that the Jews, while they were in the wilderness, built uh, in this tent was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And this room, which ultimately ended up being in the temple they built, the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. This room was designed with meticulous attention to detail. And when you get to hear me. It was a mere image of the throne room in heaven. That's what the book of Hebrews says. That when God 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 designed the Holy of Holies. He designed furniture and all, a replica of the most holiest place in all of physical or spiritual reality and creation. It is the place where his glory emanates from. And so what God did is he said, no one is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, this most holy place. This is a sacred place. You have to be ceremonially clean to be able to enter in touch, engage with any of these vessels in any way, shape or form was considered the greatest act of sacrilege on the planet. These vessels were designed personally by God. They imaged for all people his promises and his presence. And they represented true and holy worship, which as you read scripture, God is obsessed with getting true holy worship and getting all glory. Anytime you mess with his worship, you are provoking God. No pressure, worship leaders. (laughs) And the king, this is lovely, by the way, one of my favorite lines in all Daniel. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. By the way, remember last week we said, how does God get the attention of rich people who were at ease who believe they have no need of God? Distress. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Here's what this means. Uh, He should have been wearing Depends. (laughs) Literally, he soils himself in front of all of his people, which by the way, How petrifying would something be that it would make you literally lose control over your bowels? Just to give you a category that there is something supernatural, otherworldly. And when that otherworldly supernatural thing breaks into our present reality, it's not simple, cute, nice, and easy. When people see angels, what do they do? They bow down and they worship because they confuse this massive amount of glory that the angelic realm has with the glory of God. And then a good angel always says, don't worship me, worship God. Imagine how much more so the hand of God in a room glory emanating from it, and it is so petrifying because whatever this hand is, Belshazzar knows myself and that hand were not okay. Verse 7, the king called loudly, he's panicking, to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now, back to the liberal discussion with the scholars who said, oh, by the way, King Belshazzar is never in history whatsoever. It's interesting because he should say you would be second in the kingdom, but who's first? His dad, Nabonidus, who's second? Belshazzar, and then who would be third? The person who gets us. It's interesting that even the nuance of the story attests to the history that we've discovered in the Nabonidus cylinder and other documents. So he shouts, loudly, you'd be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, and they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. I mean, these guys are useless. One of, the, one of the sub-themes in Daniel is that every other religion, every other person other than somebody filled with the Holy Spirit under the power of God is useless to tell us the present, the past, and the future from God's perspective. Like, they're useless. You want to know what God wants? Open up the word. Stop going to other religions. Go to the word of God. Jesus was clear. This is verse 9. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed. How many times does his color changed? Twice. And his lords were perplexed. Now he didn't just change the hand, now he's changing because he's like, oh no, what am I going to do? I need to know what this is. This hand wants me to know something, and I think it's not going to be good. And the queen, not his wife, this is his mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, probably looked around saying, this is like Mother's Day for her, like, come on, really? And she declared, "O king, live forever. Can you imagine saying this to your son? O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Is she a worshiper of Yahweh? The answer is no, because she refers to God in the plural. You'll know she's a worshiper of the true God because she'll call him the most high God. And then she says, in the days of your father, in Aramaic, this can be translated son, grandson, predecessor, has a huge semantic range. So don't get stuck on the literalism of the English language. Aramaic gives you a lot more leverage in this. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians and enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Many um, lingu- linguists think that she's mocking him like because their names are so close. And, uh, but now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. Imagine a rickety old man walks into the room, subtle, humble, gray hair, weathered skin, depth in his eyes, calm, steps into the circumstance, sees the hand, sees the writing, sees the naked women, sees the naked men, and then makes his eyes over and he sees the vessels. And I imagine he is not humored, he's not anything other than, been there, done that, it's not my job to be angry over this, And he's probably wondering in this moment, um, I think this isn't going to go well for you. Belshazzar says to him, now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. In verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and I will make known to him the interpretation. What does Daniel know? One, he knows what's going on around the city, right? He knows. The king knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows what's happening. You know what also Daniel knows? He can go back a few chapters because he's writing the memoirs of the Babylonian kings, and he's like, there was a statue. The head was made of gold, and after that statue came a torso of silver, and I'm pretty sure that the Medo Persian Empire is going to be those people. They're already taking over the rest of the Babylonian Empire. Now they're just waiting. And so here's what he knows. He's like, Your days are numbered. He already knows this. There's nothing that Belshazzar can offer him that is going to be of any value whatsoever. One of the things I love about Daniel in this moment is that he's detached. Uh, sometimes when you're too close to something, you can't see it clearly. Um, at this time, Daniel is retired. Uh, He has been out of practice. Even the king doesn't know who he is because the kings would call the enchanters, astrologers, et cetera, in. Um, and, And so nobody really even knows who this guy is. The queen mother has to come in and say, oh, back in the day when I was a little girl, there was this guy named Daniel. Rumor has it he's still alive. And so you get this circumstance where Daniel comes in and he just seems to be completely distant from all of this. And uh, sometimes when you can just get away from all things, all the insanity, you can see it clearly. When I was at Moody Bible Institute, they had this incredibly dumb rule, at least I thought it was dumb. There will be no TVs, no TVs whatsoever, no video games. Remember that guys, Moody Bible Institute people? Haley Versalis just graduated yesterday, Moody Bible Institute, go Haley! yeah. Um, so you go and there's no TVs and you're like, this is so dumb, how can I live without my TV? Like it's not possible. So you get to Moody Bible Institute, right? And back, back when I went, right, we had, we had TVs that were like, a 12-inch TV was like this big because the screen was like that big. And then it had to be like, like two feet thick. You remember those, right? So, so um, I already had a computer monitor, but you weren't allowed, I mean, just the whole internet thing real slow. Just think of a different world than our world, okay? That's what I, and so, so you, couldn't, you couldn't watch TV. And I'm like, well, I've got to watch Dawson's Creek. I've got to watch, you know, the list goes on. Anyway, so... So I didn't know what I was going to do with all this. And uh, we get into like a week of Moody Bible Institute. And uh, it was interesting because I'm a rule follower to one degree. Like if I sign my name and say I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to watch TV, then I'm going to follow the dumb rules. So I followed the rules because that's what people with integrity do when they sign their names and stuff. And so uh, I tried to be a man of integrity. And so uh, uh, to all the Moody students who didn't do that. So, um, so what I tried to do is do that really well. And then I remember I completely forgot about TV. Completely forgot about it. I didn't go home until... Uh, it was Christmas time. And then right before Christmas on the news, they had a, in the um, foyer of Culbertson One was a big TV and they played news all the time. So I go in and I remember I sat down and I had not even noticed the TV the whole semester. And I just sat down and I started watching it. And I was like, I have not thought about that device for like 10 weeks. Like this device is not mandatory in my life. My cultural relevance, my knowledge of humanity, my ability to bring the gospel is not contingent on my relationship with this device. And until I was actually able to get away from it, I wasn't able to see it with all the clarity that I had. It was like when I had kids. You remember when you had kids and you're listening to your music and then all of a sudden you realize you should never be listening to this music in front of kids. Anybody have that experience? You're like, this is pretty darn bad. Like, I was numb to it. I thought it was great and there was no problems whatsoever. And then I'm like, I don't want my kid being formed by this, right? You have to get detached and get away from your normal circumstances sometimes to see what is real and what is true. And so Daniel is like, he's been detached. He has, he has been able to look back and see the Babylonian kings, one after another, killing each other, dying, doing terrible things, watching God smite them and do all this stuff. And he's like, you know, I've seen it all. I've seen everything you have. I'm detached. He has no need for anything these people have to offer. And this is I think an inspiration to everybody who is a follower of Jesus in this world, there is a level of detachment that you have to have if you're going to function. If you are so reliant on all the things of this world, and then when it comes time for you to not take them, you need to be able to survive. And Daniel is just great inspiration who's able to see the real quality of the world's riches for what it is. He has something bigger. And I think by the time you get to be his age, you also have a lot more clarity as well. Here's what he says to the king in verse 18. O king, The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules. The kingdom of mankind and set it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Two encouragements. You are accountable for what you know. He knew the story. and What I think is interesting is that some of you in this room have had parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who have been faithful to Jesus Christ. You have watched God move in their life, and I want you to hear me. Your firsthand or secondhand knowledge and experience of their faithfulness is on you you are now doubly accountable because you didn't grow up with a mom or dad or grandma and grandpa who neglected Jesus, treated you like a piece of garbage, neglected you spiritually, never trained you, never disciplined you. Those of you who've had the privilege to watch, you are doubly accountable because not only do you know what God wants, you have seen his power in action. And Belshazzar was able to hear and apparently know personally what God did to his great-grandfather or grandfather-in-law. Number two, you will know when you have crossed the line. Some of you will will say, have I really crossed the line? Have I crossed the line, have I gone too far? Uh, There's something in the condition of humans that you know when you're crossing a moral boundary, you're aware of what you are currently doing. And I've yet to meet too many people when they look back over their lives and they talk about that line in the sand that they crossed that they couldn't go back. I've yet to meet very many people who would say, I didn't know it was a line. I didn't know that it wasn't good. They will say, I did not know the extent of the damage that would come to me and those I love, for sure. But they all knew they were crossing a line. When you cross the line with God, you're gonna get one of two responses. And this may sound extreme, but take it for what it is. Discipline or death. How do you know you got death? Because you're dead. How do you know if you got discipline? You're alive. (laughs) It's just that easy, okay? So if you've wondered, if you've crossed this line, if you're breathing, you might have crossed the line, but it's not yet the line of no return. And so you stand here and you stand as a failure. You stand as somebody who has committed sacrilege. You have stood as somebody who has abandoned the faith of your parents and your grandparents and the many people in your life whom you've saw God doing cra- crazy awesome things in their hearts and their souls. Uh, you stand here as somebody who has abandoned the God of your fathers, who's abandoned the true God of the universe. And you're wondering, have I gone too far? You don't know what I've done. Well, read chapters two, three, and four because if God can save King Nebuchadnezzar, whatever you've done, he can save you. And so you haven't crossed that line yet. But for Belshazzar, he's about to experience a different side than discipline. He says, but you, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. By the way, not an accident. Belshazzar knew he was provoking another god. Again, you don't live in polytheistic cultural paganism, okay? Like that's not your world. In their world, for him to take these vessels was to say, try me, Yahweh, what are you made of? My gods will take your gods any day. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords. Now here, disgust in Daniel's voice and your wives and your concubines, these women that you just bring in to be sexual with you, you've drunk from them? Are you kidding me? And you have, you didn't even stop there. You praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which by the way, Belshazzar, they're not even alive. They're not even sentient. They're not even conscious. They don't even have self-awareness. They don't even see or hear or know. And you're gonna, literally, you're gonna say, okay, I know there is a living God who absolutely humiliated my father, Nebuchadnezzar, brought him to his knees in humility. He repented and gave his entire life to the most high God. That thing, I'm gonna put that God up against wood, wood and stone? Belshazzar, you're a moron. Belshazzar, this is not even logical. What are you doing? It says this, but the God in whose hand is your breath. So, a stone, you're putting a stone up to the God who controls your every breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You've provoked him. Then, from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. Here's what I love about the hand the hand is hovering the whole time. <laughs> Daniel's talking. And the hand is written, and the hand is just sitting there. And Daniel's talking, and Belshazzar's like, hand, Daniel, hand, Daniel. Is this hand? You know, like, that's what I want. I wanted the hand to, like, (laughs) slap him in the face. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mina Mina, Tekel Parson. Which doesn't mean anything to us, but it means something to them. And this is the interpretation of the matter, Mina, or Mene. God has numbered your days and brought it to an end. I've had enough. You're done. Numbered. Tackle, sounds like shackle, because that's what it's supposed to be. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Mina, shackle, parson. Each word refers to a standard of weight and measures. Probably um, one of the best ways to help you understand this is it's like somebody, a handwriting on a wall, grams, kilograms, and tons, okay? And you're like, what does that mean? And all the people are like, well, okay, what does it say? And what does it mean? We don't know how the letters were organized. They had no vowels. It was just a weird, different language. So whatever it was, it was organized in a way that Daniel could come in and be like, oh, it's these three words. And by the way, this is what it means. Here's your interpretation. Um, Your days are numbered, uh, meaning your time is up. You've crossed the line and God has absolutely had enough. He's done playing games with you. You've had everything you've needed to repent and trust in the most high God and you have abandoned him over and over and over again. You were an elitist, pompous snob and God is not gonna put up with you. That's number one. Number two, your actions have been weighed. He has seen what you have done and what you have not done. He's seen your action and inaction, and he has determined that you're guilty. Uh, You have been found wanting. You are lacking. You don't have anything redeemable left in you right now. And your kingdom is divided. It's interesting, Perez, do you know what it sounds like? Persian. That's the whole point. It's a weight, but it also makes the sound that would sound like the Persian empire sitting outside. He says, you've crossed the line. Your time is up. You knew better. You saw better. And now we're done. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. I imagine Daniel like either laughed or looked with such disgust. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So what? Most people don't understand why these vessels could so provoke God. So as we talked about before the cross, there was a distinction between the sacred and the secular. And so when Jesus was on the cross, uh, the moment he died, something really profound happened that the gospels talk about. There's a curtain in the temple. and the temple, this curtain, um, it basically stood as a barrier, as a blockade between the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, this place that nobody could walk in except for the high priest one time a year if he was clean and all these other rules and laws and regulations, right? That place and everywhere else. And this curtain was huge. It was like three inches thick. And the moment Jesus died on the cross, uh, the gospel tells us that this curtain was torn from top to bottom. And here's what this tearing of the curtain was communicating it was communicating that now there is no barrier between humanity and the presence of God except for trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. like This is the only thing that stands as Jesus is opening up this curtain and where once the presence of God was distant and far off, Jesus is welcoming people into the presence of God. What most people think is that the interpretation is this because the sacred-secular distinction was Old Covenant. Most people assume now everything is common, nothing is sacred. And yet the teaching of the New Testament is actually different. What actually shifted is that this old covenant law was made obsolete with the death resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is done and there is a new law. And this new law says, no, not everything is common. Everything is sacred. Now catch this. Now everything is personal to God because it's all God's. The earth, you, creation, your bodies, your relationships, everything is for God, from God, through God, and to God. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ actually changed everything in drastic and catastrophic ways. And now everything we do is actually personal for God, especially even more so everything we do with our bodies and other people's bodies because we are made in the image of God. We are children of God. We are precious to God. God has made people to be mere images of himself and he cares desperately what we do with our bodies and what we do with other people. And so on the cross, Jesus is saying this, Everything is not common. Now everything is sacred. And now we will be judged for how we handle this world. And if you're sitting here and you're like me, I'm thinking this to myself. If that is true, I am done. If that is true, I have made a mess of my body, my heart, and my soul, and I've hurt so many people along the way. If this is true, if everything is sacred, and if God is taking this stuff personally, then I am done. I am as bad or worse than Belshazzar. And this is what I love about Christianity because Christianity highlights this reality. You and I are sinners who have profaned the sacred and committed sacrilege. And we deserve the sentence that Belshazzar and others have gotten for this. But God has loved you so much that Jesus, the holy God, entered into this sinful world and took on himself and became sin. He took your sin, my sin, for us in our place. All of our sacrilege, every single time we didn't handle the sacred things of this world, which is everything, in a way that brings God glory, Jesus took Himself on himself our punishment for our sin in our place. Even the Apostle Paul says this, whether you eat or whether you drink, you do it to the glory of God. Uh, the New Testament, even, it, it goes bigger than just people. It takes the most mundane things of life and basically says everything you do is important to God. Everything. And this can be the worst news for you or it can be the greatest news for you. I believe today can be the greatest news because God is not simply a God of justice who will never give mercy or grace. He is a God of love and grace and mercy. And so he is giving free to anybody who would trust in him 100% forgiveness of sins. And let me tell you this, when you stand before God, you will not be able to say, I was good. I was better than Billy Bob or Susie Q or whoever. You will stand before God guilty of sacrilege. You will be stand before God guilty of taking the holy things that are his personal property, that you have been called to steal and you will be found wanting, guilty, and judged. But God so loved the world that he has resolved to not leave us in that state and he offers free forgiveness. This is the good news. You guys remember Paul Harvey, by the way? And now the rest of the story. I love him. I'm a terrible actor, by the way, like in case you don't know that, like the worst. Verse 30, that very night... Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And Darius the Mede, Medo-Persian Empire, received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So what happened is, here's how they got in. They diverted the Euphrates River. Uh, Can you imagine how long this took, right? So they diverted the Euphrates River so that the water went down just enough that in the middle of the night, the Medo-Persian Empire army was able to go in the water underneath. And what was everybody doing? They were drunk and they were feasting. And the guards weren't paying attention because the guards got lax. Why? Because Babylon could never be conquered. And so they come in without a fight. They take over the, the, the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. And they take down its capital city, the impenetrable, undestructible Babylon the great without a fight at the end of taken Liam Neeson finds uh the guy who took his daughter and the guy uh he says please understand it was all business it was it was nothing personal and Liam Neeson's got a gun to him and says it was personal to me <laughs> now you know the rest of the story let's pray father uh, I'm really just so grateful that as we read these stories um Your holiness, your justice, and your grace are all so clearly held in tension. These vessels represent that you are a holy God, righteous and true. They represent that you have standards, that you have desires, you have laws, you have rules, and these are good and they're holy and they're for our good and they bless us and all of humanity. And God, at the same time, in Belshazzar, we see pride, which to be honest, is in us. We see sacrilege, which is in us. And yet at the same time, we see your grace and your mercy through Daniel. Um, Even through the fact that probably Belshazzar committed sacrilege multiple times before this, and yet you were waiting patiently. And God, for each one of us, um, I know every believer in this room has experienced your discipline, and I thank you for that because good dads discipline their kids. And so God, I know that many of us experience that, but Lord, some of us have wondered if we cross the line. And so God, I pray your word and your Holy Spirit would make clear to them until they die, There's still time. And so God, as we come to this communion table, I wanna thank you that um, what we remember in communion is the basis for our second and third and fourth and hundredth and thousandth chances. God, I thank you that even Belshazzar, had he repented, could have been cleansed and forgiven just like his great-grandfather-in-law, Nebuchadnezzar. We love you, we thank you for the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ through the shed blood and resurrection. We thank you, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen? Amen.